Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back. Today's guest is the one and only Soleil Ho. Soleil is an opinion columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. Before that role, which is a new role as of the top of this year, Soleil has spent the last four years as the food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, really in a game-changing role from the outset. We talk a little bit about Soleil's rise in food media. We talk about the platforms that made Soleil well-known to people like me, i.e. Twitter, and the ways in which that platform specifically has changed. We talk about AI. We get into all kinds of things because why not? Soleil Ho has the range to talk intelligently on just about anything. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Soleil Ho. I am so grateful that you made time for me. When I think about like food podcasting and my own personal journey in it and Whetstones more broadly, you know, I still look at your journey and the racist sandwich part of that journey as like an interesting moment in food podcasting and really in food media more broadly. But we're many years past that now that in other ways feels like a lifetime ago. You know, ironically, I just kind of got tangled up in trying to, oh God, uh, continue hosting the Racist Sandwich podcast online because our domain <laughs> expired. Um, <laughs> I had to dig into so much. Like we forgot all the passwords to like everything. Oh my and now God. the site is dead. And I'm just scrambling. I have to like bid on the racistsandwich.com again. It's just this whole mess. It's so funny. And it's just like, should I even do this? You know, which is a big question with like media type stuff and projects is if I don't, then it's just gone. That is and that's wild. scary. Yeah. And it's, funny. it's also, I feel like we should do a, a public campaign to rescue the racist sandwich. <laughs> Whoever is holding it hostage, y'all are way out of pocket for that. Please keep us posted. But so let's talk. When was that? Was that like 2016? That was 2016, believe it or not. Yeah. And so, you know, I always think about you and people like Mayuk Sin and Alicia Kennedy. And I'm not trying to leave others' names out. So please forgive me if I am. Osai, Andrew Nguyen. But there was a kind of cluster 
if you will, of emergent, not my words, food writers and thinkers around that time, 2015, 16, who were critical of media, our little media ecosystem in particular, food. And the reason that I think about you and me and some of those other folks in that light is because we kept getting put on the same panels together over <laughs> and over. Oh, and just, yeah. And just being like, y'all, this is so whack how we have this whole thing set up. And they would be like, oh, tell us about how whack it is. You know, like we, we love to hear from you about how whack it is. And so, you know, we did that for a couple of years, but what I didn't appreciate at the time and I very much appreciate now is that we weren't all sitting on the panels just like critiquing. Everyone was building, actually. You know, everyone was living whatever our respective antithetical truths were to the system that we were critiquing. You know, again, hasn't been that long, but six or seven years later, and I kind of look at where we've landed, you know, lots of published authors now, obviously your whole career journey. And I wonder just how you feel about the wake of the last six years in food media in particular, and just like your own role in it, you know, if you have any like self-awareness or reflection around if things have changed, I think they have, what your own role was in that shift. Yeah. Wow. The ignorance and the lack of self-awareness in food media at the time, mm -hmm. you know, in 2016. So when we started Racist Sandwich with Zahir John Muhammad, you know, my co-host, we thought we had maybe three, four episodes in us, and then it just kept going, <laughs> um, you know, for a few years. And we had a, you know, a real body of work that we produced, which was pretty intense and exciting to think about. And at the same time, I think a lot of people came to us through social media and just through us, sometimes just without much decorum. And that was, this was me. I'll, I'll own up to it. I was the one on Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. behind the racist sandwich moniker. Mm -hmm. I was the one who was really out of pocket, like most of the time. And I spent a lot of time just pointing out things in framing of food stories, for instance, that just seems really like it relied on these old tropes, you know? So from the beginning, we were so deeply involved in these like bigger sort of discourses about food media and restaurants and like how we talk about the food and cultures from communities of color, especially like that was our focus. What was concurrent was also this like beginning, right, of talking about Columbusing, talking about cultural appropriation and food. And it was really easy to mobilize outrage mm -hmm. about food, especially, and I'm speaking you know, from my own subjectivity, especially among Asian Americans who have at least this generation, my generation has been like really hard to wrangle politically. But when it comes to, you know, the New York Times writing a story about like, what is boba and being really confused about it, right? Like that is when people will start freaking out. And mm -hmm. that was a pattern that we saw accelerate, I think, in the past six years. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as someone who, along with folks like Mickey Kendall, started talking about culture appropriation and food and like the material consequences of that um, in like the 2010s, you know, it was a really interesting thing to watch this evolution away from thinking about material consequences for people, right? Like Mickey wrote about food gentrification and how when you make collard greens trendy, 
you take it out of people's budgets. You make it inaccessible to people who rely on this item for nutrients and for like subsidence. And what is interesting is watching food become more of a representation game. Like when we talk about, oh, now they have Asians in Marvel movies. Now we can have abs and be superheroes. Like who does that help materially, you know? And who does it help materially to focus only on the New York Times being confused about boba? So like that was the thing that really troubled me during those years. But I also acknowledge like my place in it too, as someone who helped popularize that mode of critique. I think in reflection, right, I could have maybe done better talking about the real world consequences of these things. Because I think like, you know, with many things within identity politics, it can be really easy to get caught up in aesthetic and in the optics of something mm-hmm. and lose sight of why those things matter. Oh, so as a, as a critic, right, that was one of the things that I was really interested in. It's just now I have my own respected platform where I can talk about that stuff or it can help, you know, facilitate a, a deeper understanding of why food matters and why talking about it and like talking about it in better and more human ways is good for people in a real world way. Yeah. Yeah. It's been such a journey. <laughs> Quite a journey. And you kind of spilled this a bit, but in talking about the food media world of today being one that is playing a version of the game of representation, how does that show up, as you say, in a more material way when representation aesthetically and optically feels like a clear way where we've made progress, but maybe not you know, below or beneath the aesthetics. Yeah, I take a lot of my thinking on this from the philosopher Olufemi Taiwo, who wrote this book, Elite Capture. And it is about how in the past and just throughout history, social movements have a tendency to be taken over by the elites within that movement. You know, it's important to bring in elites. And and by that, he means people who have the most means and the most education, the highest sort of order of privileges. And it is important to bring on a lot of people from different classes, right? And have that sort of cross class solidarity. But there are many times in the past and in our current situation where the concerns of the majority is sort of sidelined on behalf of the concerns of the minority. And that is such an interesting model to think about when it comes to food media and when it comes to the reforms that we were hoping for. And so like your question of like how, like what the material impact is, is it's pretty negligible mm-hmm. because it just enables more sort of wealth hoarding among people who, for whom like the issue of representation is the pressing issue, right? It's not hunger, if that makes sense. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And I completely agree. The media platforms as the highways that we traveled on to build our careers and share our ideas. And it's a time where our magazine was made in response to a media environment of that time, which was like literally Bon Appetit magazine and Savoir. And like, it seems so quaint now. It's almost embarrassing to think that's where we were and that's what we were reacting to. It sounds wild to say we started a print magazine, but when you really reflect on the environment of just a few years ago, it really felt important, you know, to make that step. However, what we're realizing now and part of what we've observed is one of the biggest changes is in people's ability to broadcast themselves, Mm. especially with TikTok. But like, I also think 
one of the big things that that changed with that platform in particular is what we call institutional media companies, right? Like even your employer went from a space of where we would have to try to achieve bylines, to strive for bylines. That's why your hiring at the San Francisco Chronicle was such a big deal, right? But now it seems to me that institutional media has smartened up a bit and they realize, you know, a diverse byline, that is the bar in the basement, you know, with the role of media kind of all being conflated into like social PR reporting, that conflation, I think, has given power to individuals, especially individuals from different cultural backgrounds, et cetera. However, to your point, this is also happening at a time where billionaire apartheid Clyde can purchase Twitter for way too much money and start to suck the life out of this thing that was once vibrant and was a real space of connecting ideas and people. That's how a lot of us found out about you and who you are. And so to your point, you see what they did with Woke when they found out about that on Twitter. You feel me? Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that in terms of where media is today, these platforms, and just like, how does it feel as a person who came up on Twitter, seeing Twitter in the state it is today, which I think is in disarray. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're talking on a day where NPR workers are waiting to find out if they're part of, I think, the 10% of people who are being laid off Mm -hmm. today because of a lack of advertising revenue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so many of my friends work for newspapers that are owned by individual billionaires who have, for good and for ill, you know, have a very direct hand in spending and funding and even editorial decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so troubling and it has been so troubling for the past few decades and really i mean my company the san francisco chronicle is owned by the hearst corporation and you know we know a lot about william randolph hearst Mm -hmm. and the kind of power that he had in shaping u.s foreign policy as a newspaper man and billionaire Mm -hmm. and that to me is just such a (laughs) it's so indicative i think of the state of things media is so important and it's you know it's part of how we define the world when you think about performativity theory, you know, Judith Butler's theory, where when you speak things, you speak things into being, you know, and like the words that we use are always a part of like a constant building up of relation and identity and how we structure the world. And so, of course, as a consequence, media is is really important. It's a big deal. And we also see the corollary with misinformation and how that has shaped a lot of people's worlds to the detriment of their sanity and also like social stability. It's a huge responsibility. And it's that to me is also why the ownership of Twitter is so important and unfortunately so disappointing. Damn, what a shame that we lost this thing. Yeah. 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 Because I used to be so excited by it and on it. And I would use it to organize people, reach out to people, you know, start chats of people trying to come up with action plans for how do we talk about this story in Bon Appetit? How do we talk about that story? Like, what do we ask for, you know, during this time of instability at this one publication, you know, like that sort of stuff. And how do we share stories about bad actors in the industry? And yeah, to lose that resource is really tough. And it's, 
I get a lot of inquiries from younger people who ask, you know, how they can get into the industry and how they can sort of learn from what I've experienced. And structurally, the world is so different now. And the information economy is so different from even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so like, I don't think my recommendations are all that useful anymore. Mm, Totally. And with respect to TikTok in particular, have you spent much time considering the app itself, just like its place in media? Oh, man, I I think about it a lot. And I think this is the wrong fight. You know, I trust the intention. I get it. But without actual regulation over how social media giants and big tech do business, banning one app is not going to solve anything, you know, like the the security reasons are ridiculous. But I think spending time thinking about how these apps afflict so many people, especially young people and older people with this sort of addictive behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, through dark patterns and through the way they're structured and how they reward behavior and really like taking seriously on a legislative level, like how do you regulate an algorithm and how do you regulate the writing of them so that they do not foment these behaviors? You know, like how do you make it so if someone is like trying to do research on vaccines on Facebook, because, you know, whatever, God forbid, and then they stumble onto anti-vax groups, how do you keep the algorithm from continuing to serve them posts that are anti-vaccination and keep them from falling into that rabbit hole of QAnon and conspiracy thinking? You know, how do you, like, that matters. If I am on TikTok and I accidentally just somehow am clicking on things mm-hmm. and I, out of curiosity, listen to a transphobic diatribe, you know, just because I just want to know, like, what are these people thinking? You know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. It keeps serving me transphobic discourse. Yeah. Right? Like, how is that okay? Like, that is what we should be thinking about, not whether or not it's linked to China, like, whatever. But like, all of these other apps do the same thing to us, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, to me, any sort of revolutionary or democratic potential in an app like TikTok is completely undercut by like the mental horror (laughs) that, Mm. that it can inculcate in a populace. Yeah. And And these are things American companies do. I was just about to say, it strikes me that after a really shitty couple years, the entity that stands to benefit the most from this is Meta, Mm. right? I mean, only for a brief moment were there critiques about what social media, what Instagram was doing to teenage girls in particular. And we hear less about that now as we are hearing more about the perils of TikTok. I think your point is well taken. It's way above my head to think about the ways of legislating algorithms, especially because it's so out there already. Like, how do we put that toothpaste back in? I don't really get it. I kind of feel similarly about the AI thing. Have you spent much time thinking about AI in media? I'm working on a column about it right now. Um, (laughs) What's on your mind as you watch these computers merge into media? Yeah. Well, you know, I live in San Francisco, and so you can't go out to the neighborhood bar without overhearing some pitch, right, about about someone's unicorn AI startup idea. I already hear it. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, I'm working on a column about a particular dynamic that has popped up between artists, mm-hmm. uh, many artists who publish their work digitally 
and these AI systems that use digital artists' work to train the system and make it able to generate new artwork based on that work. So I'm thinking about like (laughs) colonialism and extraction and the idea of artwork as a natural resource to be plumbed Mm. and, and what impacts that'll have on art. And what is, what is interesting to me too is that right now the databases on which this training is being conducted are making separate ones that are graded on an aesthetic scale of one to 10 by a pool of just random volunteers who happen to be really into this stuff. And so it's like, if you like the art, rate it 10. If you don't like it, rate it one. And I, I, I feel like I don't have to tell you what might all be baked into, <laughs> into a system like that. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask the AI to make good art, what biases are embedded in that? Mm-hmm. And who decides what's good art? Who decides what's bad art? Who decides the likability of art? And should art be likable? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these sort of troubling things that come out of the idea of the humanities being something that we can just subordinate to tech and to science. And I think it's, it's a really sad situation. And, um, you know, you see the same things in writing and in, you know, publications like CNET publishing AI written articles that are full of inaccuracies and plagiarism. And it just Mm. is completely bananas to me. Totally is. And it strikes me that the scariest part about all of it is the stuff that I'm not sophisticated enough to really <laughs> think about, you know, mm. all of well, the that's earnings. how they get you, too. Yeah. I mean, it's like taxes, right? Like, mm. by making things more and more and more obscure, you really have to think about, like, who benefits from that obscurity? Mm-hmm. And by, like, scaring people away from asking questions because they're not smart enough or they think yeah. they're not, you know? Yeah. No, it's incredibly true. To your earlier point about 10% getting cut across the board in media, what's up with this number? It was like there was a mob meeting and all of the Fortune whatever CEOs were like, so we're all letting go of uh, 10%, right? 10%. Has that occurred to you, the kind of uniformity of these cuts across media and industry? Or is that just me that's like, what's up with this 10% number? I I see it everywhere. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... To me, it reminds me of Google's latest layoffs, which were, they admitted, like algorithmically driven. Oh, Lord. I did not hear that. Yeah. And and when you think about people who work for DoorDash or Uber or Lyft, their boss is an algorithm. You yeah. know, the algorithm determines whether they can drive the next day or what kinds of rides they get and whether they've had too many, you know, low ratings to work again you know it's there's not a person like it's so hard for them to get people online when they have trouble or they need something or they have a complaint about the way they've been judged by the algorithm Mm -hmm. and so in a few industries that's already a thing like that sort of the inhumanity i think which is what you're bringing up of like just the set number yeah i mean famously right one of the people one of the engineers who wrote the algorithm for hiring and firing at google was fired by it (laughs) Oh man, that's very yeah, 2001. Yeah, I mean that's I know, I know. I know. <laughs> it's just like so on the nose and that's so silly yeah. too. Yeah, algorithms are people too. Last thing I want to talk to you about is you got a new gig very recently actually. I think in the last month or two. Mm-hmm. So first, congratulations to you and your new job. 
And why don't you tell the people what your new role is and what the impetus for the new role was? Yeah. Uh, so I am now a sort of critic at large, cultural critic, opinion columnist at The Chronicle. I've moved to the opinion section, whereas formerly I was in the food section. And I am writing about all kinds of things now. Like I alluded, I am writing about AI and art. And I just published some stories about the alleyways of Vietnam and how that's an example of a really interesting, spontaneous urban life. And then I wrote another piece about food stamps and the end of the emergency uh, pandemic allocations for a lot of people so that for a household of one or two, whereas during the first years of the pandemic, they were bringing in about $250-ish of EBT SNAP benefits. And now the minimum is down to 23. So they could be getting 23 a month, $23. So I wrote about that. Yeah, I'm, I was hoping to just expand the scope of what I was writing. I thought that, well, one... Being a food critic forever just wasn't sustainable for me. There were just so many other stories that I thought of in the past four years, but I couldn't do because mm-hmm. it just wasn't my beat. And I, you know, I, I, I wanted to get out and do more of that. Mm-hmm. I guess it was part of my kind of pandemic born self assessment of just what do I want to be doing in the next couple of years? And it wasn't restaurant criticism. Totally. It's such a natural progression for you because you came on the scene as the person who was helping us think about food in ways is like not as obvious, right? So it's very like for people who really actually consumed your work, you know, I don't think this comes as a surprise. You know, you always incorporated so many other modes into your criticism anyway. I just read this recently where you were saying, maybe in Grub Street, I don't know, I want to attribute whoever it was, but um, you mentioned that, I think Chris was asking if you felt kind of satisfied or if you, yeah, like I think there was a question that alluded to like you being satisfied or not. And um, you mentioned that you were really happy that you had won the James Beard Award. And um, I, first of all, really appreciated the candor in that response, you know, is like not being too cool. Like, nah, that award really means something <laughs> to me. You know, I'm very curious about that award and, and what it means to you. And especially, again, in the broader context of what that organization has gone through over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And just like, yeah, how you reconcile all of that. Yeah. I mean, I've been a critic of the James Beard Foundation for a long time. Some of Mm -hmm. my earlier pieces for Bitch Magazine were about, I just sat down and counted Mm -hmm. who was nominated and who made it to the finals and who won the awards and kind of came up with, oh, well, inspired by Roxanne Gay's Vita count of, um, gosh, I think it was women writers who got publications and awards Mm. and, you know, just came away with an overall impression of the whiteness, the sheer whiteness of who was lauded by the foundation. And I never thought, I mean, I never (laughs) assumed I would get any sort of recognition from it because, you know, that's just not how it works. That's, you know, it's all politics, really. They have very good reasons to not like me. So, you know, I was surprised. I wasn't at the ceremony when I won. I was at home with my mom and my aunt who were visiting me in San Francisco. So we were watching the feed. <laughs> and um, I don't know, just, I, I had a, a level of distance from it, obviously, because I wasn't there. But they were so excited. Like, they just mm-hmm. screamed when they said mm-hmm. my name. Uh-huh. And I think that was that was a reminder that it does matter to some, to some degree. It is important for totally. people. 
not to overblow it, you know, but cynicism isn't helpful either. Who does that serve? Cynicism is not helpful. I'm learning that as I mature, (laughs) it's not helpful. I really appreciate that answer because, you know, when we won awards for High on the Hog, I've never won anything. So, you know, I kind of adopted the disposition of a person who's never won anything. And on some level, I I think actually I genuinely didn't care, but Mm -hmm. watching my parents care, watching my mom care, totally reset me and my energy and attitude around awards and recognition. And I feel a great deal more like humbled and grateful for those opportunities just because of how my parents responded to them. So yeah, that's very insightful. I I wasn't sure where you're going to go with that, but that totally checks out. It makes sense. Soleil Ho, we covered a lot of ground. I'm very grateful for your time. Congratulations on your new gig. Can't wait to continue reading you in the Chronicle. Is there anything else you want to shout out or where people can find you, if not on Twitter or if on Twitter? Uh, Yeah, you know, my Twitter handle is the same. It is H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And I will be there until it explodes. So (laughs) you'll find me there. We'll see you there then. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kolachek, editor Ilgen Kordogan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode, and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 